Good morning, everybody. For those of you who are watching the live stream or however you might be listening, thanks for making us part of your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Revelation. Thank you for the first couple of weeks in which Mel talked to us about the Apostle John and what was happening on the island of Patmos and the beautiful vision of Jesus that you gave him. Thank you for the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And while we talked about the arrogance of some last week and today the insignificance of others, we ask that you would speak to us in a powerful way to every person who is listening. May we see you more clearly, understand you more fully, and in turn, turn around and serve you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Chad was embarrassed about his dad. This wasn't a typical 10-year-old embarrassment in which his father said to him in front of all of his fr friends, I love you, son, and he turned beet red. This wasn't a typical embarrassment in the sense that his dad had a bad job or his dad was a little bit socially inappropriate. No, for Chad, this was completely different. His dad had a horribly disfigured face and drooled out of the side of his mouth. Chad was able to keep this to himself fairly well for the most part. He had his mom drop him off at school, and when he went to his friend's house, he would always ride his bike, and he'd never invite them over to his place. But after a number of years of feeling this, the resentment started to build. It's not that he hated his dad. His dad was a wonderful dad, but he looked funny, and the drool was gross. One Saturday morning, it all came to a boil where his dad said to him, son, I was able to get the day off today so that I can come and watch your big soccer tournament. Expecting a really positive response, instead, his son looked at him and said, no, I hate you and I don't want to have anything to do with you. And ran up the stairs. I don't know if you feel insignificant or not. Perhaps it's an insignificance of position and you just don't have the ideal job or the ideal kids or the ideal environment that you're looking for. I don't know if you feel insignificant because you don't have the ability to do the things you want to do. I don't know if you even feel insignificant at all. But in that moment for Chad's mom and dad, there wasn't anger, there was just shock. Where did this come from? Why did this idea impact their son so powerfully? Chad's dad looked at his wife and said, does he know? To which his wife responded, uh, I don't think so. It's time you tell him. So his mom slowly walked up the stairs and Chad was sitting there seething in his room mad at himself, mad at the situation, not knowing what was going to happen. Was he going to lose video games and screen time for a week? Was he not allowed to go to the soccer tournament today? What kind of punishment was coming? Perhaps all the above out of how mad his mom and dad must be. His mom came into the room and sat beside him and said, Chad, do you know what happened to your dad? And Chad looked at his mom and said, no, I just thought he was born that way. To which his mom replied, Chad, what happened was a number of years ago when you were just a baby, our house caught on fire. Your dad rushed me out as quick as he could and then ran back inside to grab you. And while he was protecting you from the flames, his side of his face got burnt because he was holding you and protecting you from the fire. Your dad's face is horribly disfigured because he ran into the fire to save you. Chad's face just fell. A tear rolled down his face. 
And he said, Mom, I never knew that. And he went back downstairs. He went up to his dad, gave him a big hug, and kissed him right on the side of his disfigured face and said, Dad, I'm not embarrassed anymore. I'm going to tell my friends you're a hero. I'm going to start with the big idea this morning. In God's economy, everybody has value. In God's economy, everybody has value. Insignificance has many forms. Perhaps we look at it in our sense of the position that we hold within our family, within our workplace, or whatever the case might be. Perhaps we feel like we're just not good enough. We don't have the abilities, the background, the history, the opportunities to do the things we want to do. And so we feel insignificant, but God looks at us and in his economy, everybody has value. We're currently in the book of Revelation and we are looking at the seven churches in two weeks. Last week, we looked at churches one, three, five, and seven, and we learned about the arrogance that was taking place in those churches. Today, we're looking at churches two, four, and six and seeing the insignificance that they feel. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Revelation 2 and 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab a tablet or a smartphone, or if you're on your laptop, you can go to BibleGateway.com and you can download this app. We're looking at Revelation 2 and 3. If you're not familiar with the book, here's a 30-second summary of what's taken place so far. John, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, was arrested by his, for his faith and placed in solitary confinement and placed on the island of Patmos. While he was in prison, Jesus shows up to him in an incredible vision and gives him the revelation. The first chapter is some opening remarks before, Jesus, before John describes what Jesus looks like. And he says his hair is white, shining like wool, that his eyes are like blazing torches of fire, that his face is shining like the brilliance of the sun, that he's wearing a white robe with a golden sash across it, that he's holding the seven stars, which represent the angels of the churches in his right hand. And he's walking among the seven lampstands, which represent the churches. That's the opening chapter, and chapters two and three are letters written to the seven churches. You can see on the screen that it starts in Ephesus, it goes to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and the seven churches make a circular rotation for anyone who's delivering those letters to do so easily. We pick up today in Revelation chapter two, verse eight. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. As I mentioned last week, all seven letters, without exception, begin with a personal greeting and a description of Jesus. This isn't some spam letter from your favorite retailer. This isn't a Nigerian prince offering you half of his wealth. This is an intimate letter from Jesus who knows the city and the church as well as could be understood. 
But first, a little bit about the city. Smyrna was considered the crown of Asia as its most beautiful city. Situated right on the harbor of the Mediterranean, there was wealth galore because of the trade that took place. They had paved streets, a beautiful library, and a gorgeous coliseum. Certainly not afraid of promoting themselves. On the coinage of Smyrna, it said this, the first city of Asia in size and beauty. With this phrase in mind, look at how Jesus describes himself at chapter 2, verse 8. The words of him who is the first and the last. Jesus is making it clear. Your beauty can come and go. Your idols can come and go. But I am here forever. I was at the very beginning. I am there at the very end. I am the first. I am the last. I died and I came back to life. This isn't just a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. The city of Smyrna was very proud of its resurrection experience. The city was destroyed in 590 BC and then rebuilt 300 years later. So they too had this resurrection story of how they died and came back to life. Now, if you hear this idea of the city, you might be thinking, Dave, where is the insignificance? It's in their insignificant position. They were poor, they had no social status, they were completely irrelevant. And if you're like me right now, you're asking the question, I thought you just said the city was wealthy. How are these people poor? I'll get into more detail about the economy during that time later on in the message. But for right now, I wanna take you to five years ago in a little bakery in Portland, Oregon. You might, be, you might remember that in 2015, Aaron and Melissa Klein were fined $135,000 for refusing to bake a wedding cake for a lesbian couple. The story quickly outgrew Portland, outgrew even the United States, and was told all over Canada and I think the world as well. Some people were absolutely irate that a church, uh, a two Christians would deny somebody food because of their religious beliefs. Others voiced their support and encouragement for standing up for their conviction. The story was so polarizing that it became a big deal here in Edmonton, 1,500 kilometers away. For some people, this was just one more reason to dislike Christians and wait for it. Boycott the store. Suddenly, all Christians had to make a stand. I remember being a pastor at that time and people coming up to me and saying, do you agree with what those bakers did or do you not agree and why? Back to Smyrna. The first century was deeply spiritual and people worshiped many gods. During the harvest, you would worship Demeter and so you would hope your crops would be abundant. If your wife was pregnant, you and your spouse would go and make a sacrifice to Aphrodite and pray that your child would be beautiful. Throughout the whole year, you would pay taxes to Caesar himself, worshiping him as the son of God. And all these worshipers would point over at the Christians and go, can you believe how dumb they are? They think, they think there's only one God. When they're about to go on a fishing trip, when they're about to go on on sea, they don't worship to Poseidon. They think their one God is going to help them. To make matter worse, the Jews would just pile on. Remember, the book of Revelation is written only 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. For many people, they actually believed that Christians were a sect of the Jews because most of the Christians were Jewish converts. 
But the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Christians. They don't want to be economically punished. So they do the unthinkable to distinguish themselves from Christians and to gain the loyalty of everybody else living in the cities that they live in. They would speak poorly of the Christians all over town. Even telling the authorities, you see those Christians over there? They don't worship Caesar. They don't bow down to him. They don't offer him incense and pray and talk to him as the son of God. And then the Jews, along with all the other people, would laugh and cheer as the Roman authorities took Christians to jail. Do you ever feel like you have an insignificant position? You think your small business is a great idea, but then the government says, actually, you're not essential at all. Or perhaps you already have a job as a good employee, and then your employer calls you into his office and says, well, your services are no longer required. You've always wanted to be a stay-at-home parent, but now that schools are closed and that new job description of school teacher has been added to your resume, you start thinking to yourself, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. You might be safe at home, but it sure feels like you're stuck at home. What's my purpose? What's the point? Is there more to life than this? There's a lot of ways to feel insignificant. And then look what Jesus says in verse 10. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And this might not be the point you're expecting Jesus to make. Jesus, I'm dying over here. The government is telling me I'm non-essential. My boss just laid me off. I wish my kids were non-essential so I could just get a break from them. I want to give up. And your big idea is remain faithful. Jesus writes seven letters to seven different churches. Five of them have rebukes. All four of the arrogant churches are rebuked but only one of the insignificant churches is. And it's not Smyrna. There's no rebuke. There's no correction. There's just the big idea. Church, remain faithful. Did you know that social scientists have done literally hundreds of studies to show what makes people successful? In the 1970s and the 1980s, the big idea was you're IQ was the number one indicator of success. The smarter you are, the more successful you will be. That's the bottom line. But people started to question that because just because you were smart didn't mean you had emotional intelligence or you were gifted relationally or you would work really hard. And they thought, maybe, maybe we're not right. So they did some more studies and they realized in the 1990s, we think we have a new theory. It's not IQ that is the dictator of success. It's your EQ how emotionally intelligent are you? How can you navigate the workforce? How can you engage with other people? Can you read the room? Can you understand what body language and facial expressions mean and how that impacts the business deal? And they said, yeah, well, there's lots of people who can navigate that, but that still doesn't determine success. Literally hundreds of studies have been done and they actually think they have the new idea now. It's not IQ. It's not EQ. They say the number one factor for success is grit, endurance, perseverance, or for our passage right now, faithfulness. You see, Jesus gives them words that they can't possibly be expecting. They were hoping that Jesus would come back, that he would rescue them, that they would do something. And Jesus doesn't say that. Remain faithful even unto death. 
And then he gives them this promise. I mentioned earlier that Smyrna has a world-class coliseum where the winner of an athletic event would receive a laurel and placed upon their head. And God says, oh no, I will give you something so much greater than that. I will give you the crown of life as a child of the king. Why? Because in God's economy, everyone has value, especially those deemed insignificant. The longest of the seven letters is written to the church that is the most insignificant of all, the church of Thyatira. To the angel of the third church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches." If all you have is your Bible in front of you, it would be incredibly difficult to know that the church of Thyatira has very little significance, but it does. It's located halfway between Pergamum and Sardis. At the time of the writing, it was under Roman control for nearly three centuries. Unlike Sardis, which was the church that was placed 1,500 meters up on a hill, the church of Thyatira is in the middle of a valley, constantly being defeated and rebuilt defeated and rebuilt. When people believe their lives are of no consequence, they no longer think sin is a big deal. Thyatira speaks to us as a church with an insignificant history. Two things that Thyatira is known for, their guilds and their gods. This is a town filled with guilds and all of them have the gods that they worship. I love what the scholar Sir William Ramsey says to point out how many guilds were in the city. Listen to this. Wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths, and shoemakers. Of all of these guilds, the greatest god of all was the god Apollos. And if you're like me, you know who Apollos is but you have no clue what he's done. He's the son of Zeus, the son of the great God of Greek mythology. And he does a little bit of everything. And notice how Jesus describes himself. These are the words of the son of God. This is the only time that descriptor is used in the book of Revelation. You think Apollos is the son of God, says Jesus? I am more. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the God over all things. You think the flame of the blacksmith runs hot. I have eyes like burning fire. 
to come and to consume and feet like burnished bronze that bring judgment on those who disobey. This would certainly get their attention. And then Jesus gives them this incredible line of affirmation in verse 19. You are doing even more than you did at first. That's incredibly powerful stuff. Don't we wish that Jesus would come to Ellerslie and say, church, you are doing even more than you did at first. I remember four years ago when you started your Alpha ministry, it has blossomed and grown and the amount of volunteers and people you've put through is incredible of how they've learned all about me. Your youth ministry with interns running it is more productive than it was four years ago when you had two full-time pastors. The worship ministry week after week keeps getting better and better and better. This is a glowing, glowing affirmation. But then comes a fairly intense rebuke. You think because of your insignificant history that you don't matter. Scholars don't know if Jezebel was this woman's real name or not, but it certainly reminds us of Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament. Here's what the idea means. There was someone in the church who is seducing Christians with sexual pleasures, with unnecessary luxuries, and with ruthless violence, and the church is just eating it up. Because of their insignificant history, they're thinking to themselves, who cares who we sleep with? We'll sleep with whoever we want to, whenever we want to. When it comes to luxuries, whatever we can afford. It's not a great town, we're gonna spoil ourselves. Violence, everybody does violence. It's the first century, who cares? But remember our big idea this morning. In God's economy, everyone has value. I can almost hear the excuses rolling in where people say, Dave, 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 you have no idea what my background is like. You don't know how many people I've slept with. You don't know how often I've ripped off my business partner. You don't know what my parents did to me. You don't know what it was like to be raped. Dave, do you have any idea, you sitting in your ivory castle in the church? My life is terrible. I've done terrible things. What can God possibly do? I have no idea what's happened in your life. But here's what I do know. I know that a prostitute played an important role in Jesus' genealogy. I know that an insignificant man with no education became Israel's greatest king. I know a thief became one of Jesus' disciples and wrote the first gospel of the New Testament. And I know a murderer wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. Jesus can absolutely redeem our history. In God's economy, everybody has value. All four of the arrogant churches were rebuked. Only one of the insignificant churches was rebuked, and it's the church of Thyatira. And while some people might say, oh, it's not that big of a rebuke, I think it's absolutely terrible. God's discipline in verse 23, he says, will be a passive discipline. I will repay you according to your deeds. Here's what that means. Passive discipline in my mind is way worse than active discipline. Active discipline looks like this. One man hits on another man's wife. That other man finds out about it, comes see the guy, gives him a black eye, it's over. Passive discipline is significantly worse. One man flirts with another man's wife. One thing leads to another. They commit adultery. 
they realize they actually like each other than their current spouses, so they get a divorce. Families are broken up, alimony payments are set up, the lawyers get involved, it gets really ugly, and kids are wondering, who do mom and dad even love, and am I even part of this family anymore? Stop letting your history define you. Do you remember what the affirmation was to that church? Your deeds are better than they were before. This is how I read God's solution to the church in Thyatira. Lead where you are. What can you do right now? Forget your history. Don't look through the rearview mirror. Look ahead and say, God, what can I do right now? Now, when this building reopens, how can I serve? Can I be involved in kids' ministry? Can I be a part of the worship team? Can I serve by first impressions? Maybe they need some text. Maybe there's a soccer coach who needs to, uh, a soccer team that needs a coach in the local community. Maybe I can serve my neighbors. Maybe I can reach out to the people in my community who I haven't even got to know yet until this quarantine started. Lead where you are. Do you see the promise in verse 28? I will give him the morning star. For a church that thinks it has an insignificant history, this is absolutely beautiful. The morning star typically shows up at the darkest part of night, right around 3 a.m. And at 3 a.m., the star appears and it slowly gets brighter and brighter and brighter until it ushers in the dawn with it. Lead where you are, because in God's economy, you have incredible value. Our final church, pardon me, our final letter is written to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, see? I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. For the second time in three churches, Jesus is speaking about a group of false Jews, just like he speaks out to false Christians in the other churches. If you take another look at verse nine, you'll read this. Those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not. It's this hypocrisy. It's this two-faced that makes Jesus irate. Why does he bring this up so much? Because of his description, I, Jesus, am the one who is holy and true, and there is no falsehood in Jesus whatsoever. I mentioned earlier that most Christians are Jewish converts, and most people in the first 
century look at Christians as a sect of Jews. There's Christians, and then there's Sadducees, and then there's Pharisees, and there's the Essenes. Those are the four Jewish sects. In trying to separate themselves from the Christians, the Jews lock the doors to the synagogues and say to the Christians, you're not allowed in here. It gets even worse. Not only is the door shut in their faith, but Christians are excommunicated, they're persecuted, and they're disowned by the rest of their Jewish family and friends. And then notice what Jesus says. I hold the key of David. A picture out of Revelation 1 verse 18. Jesus is the one who holds the key to heaven and earth. Jesus is the one who controls entrance to the kingdom. And Jesus is the ultimate gatekeeper and his call can never be reversed. With your Bibles in front of you, take another look at verse 8. And you'll see Jesus repeats himself, stating for a second time that that door will be opened. It's almost an exact quote of Isaiah 22, 22, where we read, I, God, will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. When he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. This idea of the house of David is referring to the kingdom of God, the city of God, the temple of God, and all the riches of God. By his death and his resurrection, Jesus is saying, I know one door is being shut but I am opening a brand new door for you. Incredible news to the Christians in Philadelphia. Why? Because they feel that their abilities are completely insignificant. The Christians in the city are absolutely demoralized. They've lost their sense of self-worth and even Jesus acknowledges in verse eight, oh, you of little strength. So let's dive a little bit deeper into what's taking place. While looking at Smyrna, we talked about the Jews. While looking at Thyatira, we talked about the guilds. Now let's bring them together. The greatest challenge for Christians in the first century was the first commandment that you can read all the way back in Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. The reason they can't join a guild isn't because there's anything wrong with selling cloth or bronze makers or whatever the guild might be. The reason they can't join a guild is because a guild is not merely a business interaction. A guild is a social interaction. And if you want to be part of that guild and sell your bronze or sell your cloth or sell whatever it might be, you need to go to the social parties. You might think, well, what's the big deal? I go to a trucker's dinner once a month. But it's not like it is today. In the first century, the guild would have a God. And so you would go to that guild party and you would make a sacrifice to an idol. And then you would pray to that idol or that God. And then you would eat the food sacrificed to idols, which is a big deal in the first part of the New Testament. And then the temple prostitutes would come out and the wine and the alcohol and everything negative that goes along with it. The Jews, under Roman law, were exempt from all sacrificial obligations and military service. The Jews had absolutely no obligation to worship Caesar, not obligated to go to the temple, not obligated to take incense, not obligated to pray. However, the Jews lived with great anxiety about this exemption because at any minute, the Senate could say, "Mm, we've changed our mind. The Jews learned to walk that edge of the knife where they could get away just enough with the guilds and they had a large enough Jewish community that economically they were doing okay. 
But then the Christians show up and they say, we ain't worshiping those gods. And the Jews want to separate themselves from them. Suddenly, Christians aren't covered by Roman law. They're not part of a guild. And they've been excommunicated from the Jewish community. They're stuck. And they're looking at one another going, what can we possibly do? What do we bring to the table? Do you ever feel like that? Man, I can't preach like Pastor Mel. I don't know how to play an instrument. And I've been teaching my kids over the last 10 weeks and that's been a disaster. So I'm not getting involved with kids' church. Here's the final point this morning. Look for opportunity. Go back to verse eight again. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus is absolutely talking about salvation, but he's also talking about opportunity. The city of Philadelphia was an important stop on a major trade route called the Imperial Post Road. It was a first century mail route. Many people looked at this opportunity as a chance to Hellenize all of the world. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the opportunity to use this place right here to tell the world about Jesus. Stop focusing on what you don't have and start focusing on what you do have. When's the last time you've spent this much time at home? Probably never. Have you used this as an opportunity to get to know your neighbors a little bit more? Have you used this as an opportunity to build interrelationships, even if you're physically distant? So you can't preach or play an instrument. Who cares? Do you like to pray? Are you hospitable? Are you creative? Are you gifted at sports or athletics or hobbies or talents? Do you want to get involved in the community? There are so many different ways to serve inside the church and inside the community to be a blessing to others for the good news of Jesus. We have a worldwide crisis right now. There is no denying that. But we also have a choice. Are we going to wallow in what we don't have or imagine all sorts of new opportunities? My friends, look for opportunity. I could honestly preach an entire sermon just on how Jesus closes the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, I don't have that kind of time. So here's the comment I do want to make. Remember how the Jews locked Christians out of the synagogue? How insignificant would that make you feel? But Jesus says, I'm going to invite you back into the temple. You are going to stay there. You are never going to leave. And you are, be going, you are going to become a pillar inside that temple. Why? Because in God's economy, everyone has value. Do you feel insignificant? Remember Jesus. Remember Jesus, who at least four times in the Gospels had people come up to him and say something like this, Nazareth, can anything good from come from there? Isn't this the carpenter, Mary and Joseph's son? the brother of James, Judas, and Simon? You call yourself a king? Before he got punched, spat on, and mocked. You say you're the son of God? 
come down off that cross. And yet Jesus remained faithful. Faithful unto death. He led exactly where God placed him. He was there in relative insignificance. Nobody knew who he was until his 30th birthday when he grabbed a bunch of young men to follow him and be his disciples. And he looked for the opportunity set before him to die on the cross, to raise from the dead three days later, and to say to all of humanity, in my economy, you are incredibly valued. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation and the incredible hope that it has to offer. Forgive us for the feelings of insignificance and remind us that we can be faithful right where we are. Remind us that we can lead right where we are and remind us to continue to look for opportunities to serve you inside the church and inside our community so that you would be glorified, you would be exalted, and you would be made famous. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.